Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS and professor of Old Testament. I'm joined by my colleagues here, Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, dean of students, professor of Old Testament, and Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology. And we have a special guest with us today to talk about Dr. Meredith Klein. Our guest today is John Meether. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, John is a close friend of many of us on this on this call here today. Um, he's a colleague. He serves down at RTS Orlando as professor of church history. He's dean of the libraries, which, uh, John, you can explain to us what that means, uh, that you're dean of all of the libraries at RTS. Is that right? Uh, right. Um, when people ask what I do, I typically say as little as possible. <laughs> um, but um, mainly it's to oversee the uh, resource sharing and the uh, collective uh, purchasing of the, um, of the different libraries, um, most of uh, which had their own library directors. Right. But this is just a supervisory way of seeing that we uh, are most efficient in our in our resource sharing. And John is also the assistant uh, director of our DMIN program here at RTS, but we have him on the call here because he's also an accomplished historian. And we want to talk to him about one of his current and favorite subjects, which is Dr. Meredith Klein. But John's been writing, he's been doing history um, for quite a while now. Uh, he's in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and is uh, the historian of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Is that, is that okay to say it that way? No, it's not. You need to put that in the past tense. Okay. Because I passed the baton. Okay, great. So you were the historian of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You've been the, the historian of RTS and that you've written the book on the history of RTS. Um, you've published quite a few volumes and co-edited multiple volumes. Uh, most recently, the Covenant Theology volume that came out from the faculty of RTS. You were an, an editor of that. You co-edited with Danny Ollinger, a past um, a past guest on our podcast. Uh, you co-edited with him uh, the work Confident of Better Things, you wrote the biography of Cornelius Van Til, and this comes out that came out with PNR Publishing. Um, you've written with your uh, your, your friend and co-author Daryl Hart um, several different books, including Seeking a Better Country: Three Hundred Years of American Presbyterianism, and With Reverence and Awe: Returning to the Basics of Reformed Worship. But the subject today uh, is Dr. Meredith Klein. And his, his Festriff, I know you co-edited that with our former colleague here, the late Howard Griffith, and that's called Creator, Redeemer, and Consummator. So we are thrilled to have you here to talk about the topic of Dr. Klein, uh, whose 100th birthday is coming up here on December 15th. So to start that conversation off, I'd like to pass it over to your brother, OPC, or here on the call, um, Dr. Peter Lee. Dr. Dr. Lee, you want to take over for us and lead this conversation? Absolutely, Dr. Red. Thank you. And John, I tell you, I've been looking forward to having this uh, episode and having you on for a very, very, very long time. Uh, as you know, and I've made no secrets about my admiration for Dr. Klein, uh, the impact that he has had on me personally, as well as theologically. Uh, and so it's always nice to have another person who has studied with him and had a relationship with him. Uh, beyond just books and, and articles and, and things like that. So it's great to have you here, finally. Thank you. And, uh, of course, we are uh, celebrating, in one sense, his uh, centennial birthday, which, of course, is a, uh, an important time and reflecting on his work and life and in contribution to the field. So I guess I maybe want to just start with uh, asking, you know, your, your relationship with Dr. Klein. How did you know him and what capacity? and maybe share with us a little bit of the impact that he made on you. Sure. Um, I, I suppose I first met him when I was a college student at, at Gordon College in the uh, mid-70s, mid where um, and I worshiped at the church that he attended. Of course, I heard of the name because I grew up in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, um, but I, I met him there. I went on there from 
from there to Westminster, um, where he was uh, serving occasionally as a visiting professor. I actually never had Meredith Klein for a course in which he gave me a grade. Uh, I, I had the privilege of auditing him on a couple of occasions, once at uh, in Philadelphia and once at Gordon-Conwell. So I, I, did, I did taste uh, his um, rich lectures in the classroom. But I, like many other uh, readers of Klein, really, uh, he impacted me by the um, uh, uh, by, by his writings, and um, I, I share I share a comment that um, Michael Horton once once made that um, Horton can't count the number of times that um, um, Klein um, altered his paradigms. Uh, he he would uh, he would actually find himself regretting to come to Klein's class because he couldn't he couldn't take another paradigm shift. <laughs> Uh, it was just overwhelming, uh, <laughs> but I, I um, the the first thing I uh, the, the thing I, I remember reading, and there were many of these, but um, I guess what made the most powerful, a very powerful first impression, was his piece called um, "Intrusion and the Decalogue," yeah, and the way in which he uh, underscored the uniqueness of the uh, Israelite theocracy. Uh, and used the category of intrusion, theocratic. Um, episodes in redemptive history were uh, marked the intrusion of the end times in time. And um, so um, the ark was um, an intrusion, the ark of Noah, uh, right. the, uh, the nation of Israel as a geopolitical entity um, under the terms of the Mosaic covenant was an intrusion. And this just um, solved a host of a nagging um, issues about um, Old Testament ethics and the like. And I just found that a very creative way of, uh, of, of, of explaining the biblical data. And um, uh, anyone who's read Klein um, on that or other places will know how, um, how, how, cre how creative and how um, uh, helpful that is in sort of sharpening um, the focus on, on, on difficult issues. I agree. In fact, I've often wondered uh, in, in a lot of the recent discussions of covenant theology on, um, you know, it's a sort of a limited discussion here on the question of the republication of the works principle uh, in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, I wonder, because Dr. Clyde never used the word republication, and I don't think he ever used it in his writings. And I often wondered if perhaps the uh, repub guys are getting the works principle from the wrong source. It's not coming from the original covenant with Adam, it's actually an intrusion aspect of the uh, of the eschatological kingdom. And it's better to accurately refer to Dr. Klein's view, not as a republication of, as it is a, an intrusion uh, of the kingdom of understanding Israel in the Old Testament. And that is very much in his lines of thinking and how um, he saw the, uh, the typological nature of Israel. The source of that is coming from the uh, the eternal kingdom, not necessarily from the garden. The garden for him was just another type of eternal kingdom. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, he was, um, what, what strikes me, um, another thing that really impressed me, Klein, Klein fell into controversy with his view of uh, the nature and the character of the creation days with his framework interpretation. And uh, it always struck me as ironic that um, among the critics um, of his view, um, a common claim was that Klein undermined a doctrine of the Sabbath because these aren't literal days. And so without literal days, there's no literal command to observe the Sabbath. Well, what's ironic about that is when you read Klein, uh, you see how um, um, fiercely sabbatic Sabbatarian he is, how sabbatical he is. He uh, right. creating God, the, the alpha God is the omega God. He finishes what he begins. And there is an eschatological uh, Sabbath orientation that's more powerful and climb than, than anyone yeah. else I've read. On no, I, I, I totally agree. In fact, you know, I've been doing these Klein quotes on Tuesdays. Yeah, where I which I love, by the way. Well, oh, thank you. But uh, and one of them I remember was how he saw 
you know, the Lord in his eternal kingdom as a Sabbath rest, how Adam in the garden was um, working to enter into that Sabbath rest. So you had a sabbatical pattern in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, subsequently after the fall, it he, he actually looked at the history of salvation as just one sequential Sabbath after another leading to the ultimate Sabbath. Um, it, it was such a beautiful picture. Uh, it just made you want to practice Sabbath and honor Sabbath all the more. And I found that ironic given the fact that he later in his life, um, um, you know, uh, became a non-Sabbatarian. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, I think there's some debate about where he ended up on the Sabbath. And um, he was a practicing Sabbatarian. <laughs> that was oh. true. And I, um, I remember having a conversation with Lee Irons um, many years ago where uh, I suggested, and he agreed, that um, Klein's theology uh, provides, um, how should I say this, uh, a better Sabbatarian, a better, pra- a better doctrine of the Sabbath that he may allow. <laughs> In other words, um, there's, you, you can make, you can make a, a strong case for um, um, Sabbatarian practice today with the proper redemptive historical adjustments, of course. Right. Um, based on his theology. Um, you know, the, going back to the intrusion idea, um, um, the, the, um, uh, the other hints of, of intrusion in the Old Testament are the prophetic uh, calls, the prophetic uh, visions of the day of the Lord that's coming. This is the ultimate Sabbath. Well, another way of saying day of the Lord is Lord's day. <laughs> So the Sabbath itself as a weekly practice is, is an intrusion also of the end time in time. So you really have um, all this comes to bear through, through, Klein's, through Klein's thinking. And I think it's, a, um, it, it's just a, a powerful incentive uh, to see the Sabbath in a new way. Absolutely. Again, he's just filled with so many uh, exegetical and biblical theological gems. It's, it's really hard to exhaust uh, everything in one episode. John, you talked about Klein's creativity, and that's the thing that, that struck me. I remember in my first year at seminary, it was, it was around 2000, and I had heard Klein's name in class, and he had been cited. But I actually think, uh, back in those days, my wife was working at the seminary and then moved from one position over to work for you at the library. And I remember chatting with you in the library and you uh, gave me an article of Klein's. And back in those days, it wasn't easy to find Klein's work because you didn't have an internet where you could find a lot of this stuff. You could find his published works if you could get a hold of them, but like Kingdom Prologue wasn't easy to come by. And I remember actually a a fellow student and I went around and made it our job to copy every periodical article that Klein wrote. And then we put them into a notebook, three ring (laughs) binder, uh, uh, some will have to explain that to the kids later what a three ring binder is, but I, I still got it in my office and we just poured through it. We committed to reading through it partly because of what you said. I mean, he, here's a confessional Old Testament scholar who was deeply innovative and exciting and interesting mm-hmm. and yet was guided by confession. And he, I think he gives a great model on what right. that can look like in the life of a scholar of, of, of being anchored in a confessional faith and yet engaging with scripture with innovation and creativity and really in some ways kind of for me pointed me in the direction of going into old testament he was one of those big influences and i know i'm not the only one a lot of people i talk to a lot of guys my age will say oh meredith klein really turned me on to to this um so speaking of influences what are what is klein's early academic career what does his early like life look like um as you're working on this biographical work, what are the influences of Klein that kind of, any, any hints that we get of the man who will later emerge as Meredith Klein? Yeah, you don't get, you don't, you hardly get any hints when you look at his, at his um, birth and upraising, uh, his early years. He um, was born in Copley, Pennsylvania, which is um, a small town in Lehigh County, no, a few miles north of Allentown. It was a small town then, it's a small town now, but it was transitioning from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy and ironworks, ironworks uh, from an 
let me say it again. Copley was transitioning from um, an, an industrial economy to a, um, one more time. <laughs> Copley was transitioning from an ag agricultural economy to an industrial economy. And uh, what was significant was the um, coming of an ironworks factory uh, in the uh, 1920s. And that brought Harry Klein, his father, with his family, uh, Harry Klein was a uh, was a boat worker who migrated from um, Boston to uh, Brooklyn and then to Copley, looking for uh, employment. And um, Klein was born there in 1922. At the age of four, the family moved to um, Dorchester, a section of Boston, where Harry Klein would work in his parents uh, in his family's um, painting business. Uh, uh, a one, one of the um, interesting annual um, projects um, the family did was to give a fresh coat of paint every spring to Fenway Park. Um, so, um, and that, by the way, made Klein a lifelong member of um, Red Sox Nation. Uh -huh. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, so he, um, his family joins a congregational church in Dorchester, where a very faithful pastor becomes a spiritual influence on him, probably of dispensational leanings. Um, Klein was a brilliant student. He goes, uh, he enrolls in Boston Latin nearby, uh, which um, is uh, which claims to be the oldest school in North America. It antedates Harvard College by one year. It was a place where um, Samuel Adams, Ben Franklin, John Hancock attended. Wow. Um, and um, he graduates from Boston Latin with offers to go to Penn and Harvard, I think. But feeling called to a pastoral, to, to ministry, he's urged to attend a small college nearby, uh, also in the Fenway area of Boston, which is Gordon. College of Theology and Mission. Hmm. And he attends there, um, and upon graduation, he feels called to the ministry, and uh, believe it or not, um, he, his intention is to attend Dallas Seminary. And just stop and, and pause and think about wow. who we'd be if, if Meredith Klein went to Dallas. <laughs> uh, apparently, that decision really disappointed his mother because he would move so far away. So as an accommodation to her, he enrolled instead at Westminster. Um, now, he had a professor at Gordon College who may have been of some influence here, a fellow named Burton Goddard. Uh, you may not know the name, but if you've been to Gordon-Conwell ever, you've heard of the name because the library at Gordon-Conwell is Goddard Library, a longtime member of the faculty and a graduate of Westminster himself in the very early years. Um, so Klein goes to goes to Westminster, and um, Westminster in the 1940s. He goes from 44 to 47. Was very small, and it was it was barely barely hanging on. Um, these were difficult. This was a difficult decade for Westminster. The war years was a factor. Um, the controversies in the OPC over McIntyre and Gordon Clark was affecting student um, attendance. Uh, a, an upstart gets started on the West Coast in 1947, Fuller Seminary. But to give you an idea, um, there were um, Klein's class, he graduated in 47, was the largest class of the decade, had 13 students. They were as small as, uh, as three graduates in 1949, as small as five graduates in 1946, very small. This had the effect of, I think, among other things, of giving him um, the opportunity to get really to know some faculty and, and work closely with them. Um, the, the one who he would later say was most influential on him was Cornelius Van Til. And you see that uh, in, in Klein's militants in a, in a lot of his writings. But two other faculty need to be noted. Paul Woolley was a very close um, professor of church, church history, was very close to him. And um, would it would take three years, but he would he would make 
Klein a Presbyterian. But I think at, at first, the one who was most influential was Ned Stonehouse. Oh. And uh, it was Ned, Ned Stonehouse turned him on to um, study the book of Revelation. And this would become his, uh, his DMIN project, uh, I'm sorry, his DHM project. Um, I don't say thesis because technically they didn't have a, a thesis for the DMIN, but they had a, in effect, a senior paper, which was, which was something like a, um, a THM thesis. And at the age of 25, he composes this. And uh, decades later, Greg Beal and Dick Gaffin, two men who know something about the Book of Revelation, say this is this is this is the most brilliant outline of the structure of Revelation they've ever read. Hmm. Um, so uh, he becomes uh, very convicted of of uh, of amillennialism very soon. Um, of Calvinism and eventually Presbyterianism through his experience at uh, at uh, Westminster, but none of this you really would have predicted if you looked at his childhood. Um, so that was a remarkable um, providence that he would come into contact and be heavily influenced by these folks at Westminster. That's fascinating, and particularly given I mean the, the, how how influential he becomes then in the whole Reformed tradition. Right. After going there to stay close to his mom. I love yeah, that. exactly. I love that story. So how does he how does he end up? Uh, he goes and, and, and goes to the now, I guess, Dropsy College, which is now a part of UPenn uh, as a Judaic right. Studies Center. But he was at Dropsy College, which was a standalone institution. And that's where he got his Ph.D. Right. Uh, well, he he first um, uh, he, he did apply to Harvard and didn't get in um, Harvard offered him a scholarship for his undergraduate work, but not for uh, doctoral work. Uh, Dropsy was, was, was local, but it was also among the more, most prestigious places to study Assyriology. And he studied under Cyrus Gordon, yeah. uh, a renowned um, scholar um, who, who, um, who thought Klein was his prized student. Um, That's really interesting. This now, Klein did this. Um, while he took a pastorate in New Jersey, he pastored a church for um, two or three years. Um, 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 while doing graduate work, doctoral work, and while being appointed a part-time instructor at at the, at Westminster, um, he's also raising a family. Um, Two boys were born while he was at Westminster. A third came later. So he's a very busy man during all this. It's remarkably productive. It's interesting about Gordon, too, because in Semitic circles, Gordon is, as you said, renowned for a couple of reasons. One of them is his work on Ugaritic, which was just kind of emerging in the Semitic scene right around this time. But then also he's a creative, he's a creative scholar who's looking beyond the typical um maybe sort of the typical limits of the discipline and noticing things like you know there's a certain zeitgeist zeitgeist in the mediterranean uh you know during the time of the judges in israel that you see showing up elsewhere and kind of making some interesting observations that are still influential right. in reference today but outside of the typical discipline and I, I kind of as i think of gordon i think yeah he is kind of meredith klein like i can see how klein is formed there as right. someone who's a a deeply, you know, educated scholar and expert in his field, and yet also is sort of cross-disciplinary too. He's looking beyond just the field for application. Right, right. That, Does that ring true to you, Peter? About that, Scott. It, it is. I mean, you know, uh, Cyrus Gordon, in many ways, was, um, you know, he was cut of a different cloth. He was brilliant, uh, and you know, he talked a lot about kind of. Uh, uh, ancient uh, uh, Hellenistic influences into the Mesopotamian area, which, you know, the, that's the type of thing that they didn't want to do during his day. They wanted to keep Mesopotamia distinct from Hellenism, distinct from Egyptology. Uh, but, you know, Cyrus Gordon was not going to do that. He was going to see things as he saw relevant and, um, and, uh, and, and do that kind of work. And, and you do kind of see that, that kind of spirit in Dr. Klein. He's willing to kind of go in and tread into areas that are, um, uh, th that perhaps is a little bit more controversial 
uh, he will hold to his guns if he saw something as being um, uh, of scripture, even if it was against the majority. Uh, and you could almost see that spirit of Cyrus Gordon kind of continue uh, within uh, within his thinking. And at least that's that kind of uh, not independent spirit, but um, but that desire to kind of uh, to discuss the things that the rest of the, the academic community may not be willing to discuss. Mm -hmm. I definitely love the uh, the uh, revelation aspect of, of Dr. Klein and the influence of, of Ned Stonehouse on him, especially in the book of Revelation, because that really does explain a lot of his thinking. He, you know, he starts in the old, and, you know, those who've studied with Dr. Klein and have sat through his lectures know that, um, especially in his Pentateuch class, the, the reason he can't get past Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is because he starts with a thematic aspect in Genesis 1, let's say, like Adam. He takes it as it's developing, and this is standard biblical theology, to take it as it's developing throughout the Old Testament. He sees how it's fulfilled in the New in Christ. He, has, uh, he really spends a lot of time in Paul, but he never ends in Paul. He always has pushes always to the book of Revelation, and that sort of is his, the trajectory of his thinking. It started in the Old it's not just uh, Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. That's way too simplistic and too broad. It's 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 Old Testament fulfilled in in uh, the Gospels, in then how it's fulfilled in Paul, and he always ends up in the Book of Revelation. Uh, and that's just one of the things that you really kind of appreciate. It's it's not the mere Pauline influences on New Testament studies. It's the Book of Revelation influences. Uh, on on uh, New Testament studies or, or or biblical theology as a whole, and and uh, and now you can understand why he does that uh, because of the early influences of um, of uh, the Book of Revelation on his thinking as he right. started developing as a thinker. Yeah, that that kind of raises two things that I really appreciated about Klein and about his contribution, and that were influential to me. One is the way that he develops that kind of Old Testament theo theological language, you know, rather than jumping out of the language of the Old Testament and imposing a kind of new language upon it, you know, he really develops, he, he takes specific Old Testament words. I, I still remember um, that, you know, his, his copious use of hyphens, right, the Holy Spirit glory cloud, kind of taking that and and using that to then uh, trace in, you know, using that Old Testament language to then capture some themes, fulfillment ideas in the New Testament. So I really appreciated that kind of the, instead of letting the New Testament interpret the Old, he kind of switched it up. Um, the Old Testament interprets and sets a trajectory for the New. Uh, so it really helped me there. And then too, kind of to Peter's point, this emphasis on a cohesive theology, seeing seeing these themes, seeing these Old Testament concepts and ideas everywhere, not just Paul, but Revelation, Hebrews, you know, that that kind of full-orbed picture. It almost had some systematic theolo theological character to it, but was really oriented towards exegesis and biblical theology. Right. I want to, if I may piggyback on that, um, <clears throat> It's an interesting story that um, Dick Gaffin told me. Um, there was a year, 1965, 66, something like this. There was one year when, when Gaffin and John Murray uh, overlapped on the faculty. It was Gaffin's first and, and, and Murray's last. And about that time, um, by oath consigned, it would come out a few years later, but uh, an essay in in the Westminster Journal, which would become a chapter in Bio with Consigned, came out. And Gaffin tells me he talked to John Murray about this. <clears throat> and I'll never forget Murray's response. Murray's response was, beware of architectonic constructions. Beware of architectonic <laughs> constructions. Now, um, Nick, said, Nick said to me, I always thought it was ironic that a systematic theologian was worried about yeah. biblical theologian going right. that direction. I think it probably yeah. used some architectonic, you know, parameters there. Yeah. Um, I like that's John Murray, who's known for architectonic construction. Right. <laughs> you know, today 
we would welcome biblical scholars right. being more architectonic. Right. But I think this 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 is indicative of um, the struggle people have with Klein. I think he was often too systematic um, for the for the um, for the biblical theologians and uh, too biblical for the systematic theologians. But he was as as um, as uh, his son Meredith M. Klein uh, would put it, uh, Klein was um, um, he he had this uh, mind of an architect. He wanted to see the big pictures, and then he wanted to bring 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 all the details in coherence with that. Uh, he never lost the forest for the trees, or vice versa. He saw he saw the big picture and the and the and the details, and and um, he was relentless in seeing these things connected. And this is where I think people struggled. I, I've heard it said that Klein is um, is guilty of um, of uh, over exegeting passages. Well, one person's over exegeting is another one's attention to um, all the details and and spelling them out in in, uh, in 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 greater clarity. And I think that's what Klein does in in such a breathtaking way. How much of that do you think, John, is, is the influence of, of Van Til as well? Because I think <laughs> listeners will recognize that Van Til was, of course, an apologist. But one of the ways in which Van Til became influential is because he was so interested in system building and trying to make everything as consistent as possible. And so um, one of the ways in which Van Til would treat his opponents would be to say they're inconsistent in this way, right? Or they didn't take this thought far enough or something like that. So you also mentioned, of course, that Van Til was a main influence for Klein. Can you talk about that influence? Is this one of the ways in which he was influential for Klein? Yeah, I think um, certainly that does come from Van Til. I think Van, uh, uh, Klein does see that and appreciates that. The two of them were, were, were remarkably close. Um, Van Til was, um, was deeply disappointed uh, when Klein left in 1965 to go to Gordon Divinity School, which became Gordon Conwell. We want to talk about that if we have a few minutes later. But there's a there's a there's a host of letters in the archives, uh, and when I say archives, um, what I mean by that is last summer um, Meredith M. Klein and his brothers graciously donated sixty boxes of archival material to the OPC archives, the papers and letters of, 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 of Klein, of his father. And this is what's got me uh, energized to do the biography. It's gonna write itself with this rich uh, treasure trove of papers and letters. But there are a lot of letters between the two of them. And they're, they're quite intimate, um, um, even uh, to the point where um, Grace Klein or Rena Van Til would append a little note to each other at the end of Meredith and Cornelius's letters. So the families were quite, quite close. Um, and Klein kind of let his hair down and was really honest with Van Til about many things, even his growing apprehension of the covenant formulations of John Murray. And there are a couple of letters where I can see Van Til nodding his head in agreement <laughs> with Klein about this sort of thing. Uh, and here's another way in which Klein's precisionism, his, his driving to get, to get a, 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 a coherent architectonic consistency in, in a subject is, it, um, it, you see, um, and uh, and 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 escalating frustration with Murray. Um, he has a couple of um, footnotes in by oath consign, where he very respectfully um, demurs from Murray. Decades later, uh, if you read especially the article um, "Law Until Gospel," I think it's called. He's, he's pretty explicit about Murray has unleashed a revisionist movement on covenant theology that is bearing uh, dangerous consequences. And dangerous consequences for him was code for Norman Shepard. 
and theonomy. Um, um, that's, I was going to ask that because that's going on in the background of that the, is, later, the later background, right? As you have the Norm right, Shepard uh, right. issue at, at Westminster. And, you know, when you go to Van Til, um, 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 the theonomists uh, claim Van Til. Shepard claimed Van, uh, Van Til as a supporter. Um, Van Til very, very late in life um, when he wasn't fully on top of the, the nature of the controversy, said some things in defense of Shepard. But when you read uh, the letters of, of, of Klein, you, you sense that uh, Van Til, leaning on his, his own appreciation of Gerhardus Voss, was seeing the redemptive historical distinctions that Klein was bringing out that prompted him to take issue with Murray and Shepard and theonomy. And, and the, the topic for those who aren't familiar with the Norman Shepard issue and, and, the, and, this, and, the, and, and in a way, an extension, the John Murray versus Klein issue. They're, they're, they're different issues, but they have implications, right? They have overlapping implications. But for Shepard, particularly, the question is what are the role, what's the role of works or merit? in salvation properly vis-a-vis -vis faith and particularly in the area of justification. So, um, and Klein, of course, holding to a very strong faith alone um, conception of justification versus Norm Shepard, who at least perhaps in class or elsewhere, and this is where, of course, the debate is, you know, is introducing faith and works as an idea uh, sort of undergirding justification. This is a very simplistic explanation of it. Right. And, and I want to make clear that um, uh, Klein would see differences between Murray and Shepard. Right. Uh, Klein, um, Murray rejected the idea of the covenant of works, that language. But he basically had a, a, a bicovenantal structure. He called it the Adamic administration. But he would he'd actually, in some of his writings, eschew any notion of covenant going on with, uh, with Adam. Yeah. It, with what we call the covenant of works. But um, uh, Klein, um, while, while, while Klein would not accuse um, Murray of holding the views that Shepard would eventually articulate, he did say that Murray was sort of the gateway for, for right. Shepard right. um, to get there. Yeah, the, um, the fear he had was not just uh, uh, Murray per se, but uh, someone like Daniel Fuller, exactly. whose theology was very was it it sounded like Murray, and if you weren't careful uh, with your distinctions and definitions, you could easily see how Daniel Fuller's covenant theology and John Murray's covenant theology could sound the same. And and Daniel Fuller did believe that Adam was in a covenant relationship pre-fall, and that covenant was a covenant of grace. Right. And that's where Dr. Klein said, this is now orthodoxy is at stake. The gospel is at stake. You can't do that. And, 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 and so John Murray, again, again, he never said that. You're totally right, John. And I think that's an important distinction to remember, that uh, John Murray taught that, uh, that, that the Lord's relations with Adam was not a covenant, but it was still a works arrangement, works principle, right. that type of idea. So he never held to the idea that Adam was... Uh, that the Lord worked with Adam in a grace principle, um, and and there is where the similarity they, they sound similar, but the distinction there for him was important. But as you, as soon as you start talking about grace pre-fall, uh, and Dr. Klein had a very particular way he defined grace, but as soon as you start talking about grace pre-fall, you have now undermined the gospel, and and he was very zealous about this. Grace, right. grace being defined as unmerited favor. Right. Demerited That's, favor, I think, is the way Dr. Klein would define but, it. He, he would define yeah. grace as, as you have received the covenant blessings in spite of your forfeiture of it. You deserve wrath, but you get kingdom blessings mm -hmm. nonetheless. Yeah. And to put, it, to put it simply, if you mix works and grace in the, in the Adamic covenant, you're going to mix it in the new covenant. With Christ, right? That's that's right. the problem. You, if whatever you say about the first Adam, you have to say about Christ as the second Adam, 
And if right. you have Christ in a grace arrangement, there you have no grounds now for justification. There is no merit. Uh, there is no alien righteousness that that he merited yeah. that can that can be uh, that can be imputed now. And so, uh, and that's why he stood so staunchly on on this point. And and um, and interesting. I would love to read these letters, John. I'll tell you, it fills in a lot of gaps of how you had a sympathetic client towards Murray in Biocon sign, which is true, you know, like he, he actually appreciates Murray, but uh, but respectfully disagrees to right. later client where he's a little bit more aggressive and and to see that development, you know, what happened? <laughs> well, is that, that probably that, Norm Shepard? I mean, that he sees Norm well, Shepard as an, as it, an activation Norm Shepherd, of this problem. It's also, it's also um, a theonomy. The, uh, it's, it's, he called it the tragedy of Chalcedon as, as Rushduni called his his operation, uh, the, the, um, this was a, a tragic. Um, this was this was the old new error, as he called it in that review uh, of of Greg Bonson, um, uh, mixing up um, flattening flattening the the, um, the distinctions between um, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. I know that Gray had a question. I'm sorry, Gray. No, this is this is all very fascinating. I think I think well, this question could lead could be could be piggybacking off of everything you said there between the earlier and the later climb. When I was at Westminster Seminary, and um, the way I saw Klein being talked about, and I wonder if you could comment on this, John. And we're at RTS here. We're we're a third party. We're you know we're the Switzerland. But um, it seems that there's a sort of contested legacy of Klein, right? So nobody likes theonomy. But in the in the Westminster Seminary that I went to, Klein was seen to be the continuator of the Vos Van Til sort of legacy and nexus. And then they were saying, therefore, that at Westminster, California, in advocating this Kleinianism toward a radical two kingdom theology, the way that they would have talked about it, is actually a deviation from Klein's truer essence. If that makes sense. And I wonder if you could comment on this sort of contested legacy, because I see Klein in both of those things, so that makes sense. And I don't necessarily see them as necessarily um, in opposition to one, to one another, right. the Boss Van Til right. thing and the Two Kingdom thing, but defining Two Kingdom in a particular way. Anyway. So um, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. Um, I think you're seeing uh, Klein's... Um, um, you're seeing manifestations of what can be called an earlier Klein and a later Klein. Um, and um, it's, I, I think, and I, I wanna research this more carefully um, before I commit this to print, but I think that it's anachronistic to call Klein an advocate of two kingdom. I don't see him using that language. I think that comes after his passing, you, you get publication on, on this, David Van Drunen, uh, Michael Horton, Daryl Hart trying to develop these ideas. I do think he's the architect of that. And I think that's because um, of, his, uh, of, of his late in life controversies he's involved in. Um, but you find the seeds of it Early on in his in his in his writings, he, he develops these more fully, and and this is his his, his relentless insistence on being, on, on, on taking these ideas to their, their logical uh, uh, conclusion. Um, so I don't see I don't see a contradiction between what people like to call an earlier climb and a later climb. I see it um, a change in emphasis. Um, the way I put it, um, when I was a student at Westminster, Philadelphia, he was saying uh, the Mosaic Covenant is a administration of the covenant of grace with a typological works principle embedded in it. In Escondido, he does start to use, I think he starts to use the language of republication. It's a republication of the covenant of works. Those two, I think it's it's a it's a change in emphasis, but not a change in position so much. Um, so you're getting you're getting in, in Philadelphia and in Westminster articulations of these two different eras. Um, but they're ultimately, I think they can be they can be reconciled. 
um, if that if that's helpful. Yeah, it definitely was. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, I was going to ask a different kind of question, but I don't know well, if anyone. Let me before you do. I think mapping onto that, there's an interesting progression that I've noticed in Klein that I, I really appreciate. So this is now getting away kind of like what does he represent in the reform tradition, but just in his academic interest, you see him beginning early coming out of dropsy with a very Semitic text, uh, text in history kind of focus. His, his mm -hmm. first huge splash into his discipline is the Treaty of the Great King, which is very much classic 20th century biblical theology, right? He's taking these suzerain vassal treaties. He's recognizing pretty early on too, if you look at all the guys who are who are noticing suzerain vassal treaties in their import for theology, like Mindenhall and Hillers and uh, you know um, Baltzer and others, Klein's one of the early guys who notices like right. this is this is Deuteronomy, right? And he, he, he organizes Deuteronomy that way. And I think his work is still extremely valuable there. But there's this movement now, he, he takes that, he starts off as kind of a text and language guy. He sort of moves and sort of, uh, you know, moves into some canonical space. He, he deals with canonical structure of the Bible. He talks about um, canon and its value for interpretation. And then sort of continues on in that trajectory into areas that are kind of more traditionally systematic theology, like justification, right? And what's grace and the definition of grace. And I I appreciate that about him that his career shows that arc of um, you know, being solidly rooted in the discipline of just Old Testament studies and yet taking that application and sort of seeing where, it, you know, serving the church in a way by taking that, that education and going into some new areas that maybe don't, aren't obvious for the Old Testament scholar. Um, and doing it in a way that's a help to the church. You know, I, I know by, by the end of his life, it seems like his work is much more practical and directed towards the belief of the church in terms of salvation and justification. It's st still responding to Shepherd in a way in Murray, right. but he seems like he, he sees his calling as serving the church, not just staying in that space of like esoteric Old Testament studies, perhaps. Yeah. Um, a couple of things there. Um, I do think that um, there's a sense in which he sort of made his arguments in Treaty of the Great King and the structure of biblical authority and um, sort of set his piece there and then um, pursued kind of Vossian themes later. One factor that strikes me that may have sort of um, pushed him in that direction was was coming to Gordon Conwell. Hmm. Uh, he was uh, he anticipated a larger platform and he got one. He got um, his students now were were more broadly evangelical students, and he really saw uh, a calling there uh, to make uh, um, to make the Bible, the Old Testament, clearer to these these these. Uh, students who had sort of naive dispensational assumptions coming into the text. And I can't tell you how many Gordon Connell grads I've met who have said to the, to the words of this effect, Klein taught me how to read the Bible. Yeah. Um, so I think um, when you look at his magnum opus, which took decades to write, Kingdom Prologue, these are all this Pentateuch class he taught over and over and over again. And I think he, I think he felt especially in the context of Gordon Conwell, the burden of taking this on and making this his, um, his priority, his, um, his research and teaching priority. No, that's fascinating. Uh, he, um, he, still, he still had a real love for Westminster. He never left Westminster in a sense. Um, Rick Linz, um, his longtime colleague at, at Gordon Conwell, I, I had lunch with him last summer, and he joked that uh, he said that David Wells and he, David Wells and Rick Linz would joke that Klein never cared what was happening at faculty meetings in South Hamilton. <laughs> he wanted to know what was being said at faculty meetings at Westminster. Um, uh, he should so, add to that. He taught at RTS for a period of time too, right? He so did. You need to throw that in. That's right. He taught. He taught two years at. Um, 
uh, during a January term in um, in Jackson. And uh, I asked him about, I had occasion to talk to him about that years and years ago. He loved those years. This is just before he started to do the, um, the Escondido spring semesters. And I think, I think that was a transition that made him see Escondido as a possibility. Well, had he stayed there and not gone to Escondido, then, uh, you know, his influence at Westminster West or Westminster Seminary, California, excuse me, uh, you know, he cast such a large shadow um, and influenced uh, generations of uh, people, myself being one of them. And so I kind of wonder how that all would have played out had, had uh, he stayed there at Jackson. Right. Um, it's possible he would have tried to do all three. I don't know. Gordon Conwell and Jackson and, and Westminster. But I would also say beyond his influence in Escondido, I think ultimately that became the most effective platform that Klein had. Oh, is that right? Interesting. Because his, I think his best writing was, and I would also argue uh, his best students were in those Escondido years. And so um, I think the whole church stood to gain from the two decades he spent at Escondido. They well, were remarkably is, productive years for him. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, he did, uh, you know, all the Zechariah essays, I think, uh, during those years. Right. Um, his, uh, uh, what became essentially his last work on God, Heaven, Armageddon, I think was kind of, uh, in fact, when I read that, you could hear his class lectures. Um, during those days uh, in, uh, in that book. In fact, the appendix essay, I think, on um, Armageddon, the end of the millennium, I think, where he argues that Armageddon is not Megiddo, it, it's uh, uh, Harmoe, which was a game changer for me in terms of right. how he understood that, uh, I think came during those years as well. So that is, uh, that is interesting. Uh, I do have one last question, guys, if, um, if we want to try to bring this to a close, I guess. Uh, hey, hey, John, I mean, I could keep talking about Dr. Klein forever, and, uh, and I'm particularly interested in the, in the specifics of his life, it, which is something that I've not ever had a real good chance of um, understanding outside of just personal private conversations I had with him uh, as a student way back when, but I was so dumb <laughs> in those days, I didn't know exactly what to talk to him about, but I guess if we want to bring this to a close for today, I, I guess I'd be curious. Here we are now in the 21st century. Uh, we now live um, uh, several years now after his passing, 100 years of his life and of work and contribution that he has made to the field. Um, I guess I'm curious what you see. What, what is the largest impact that he has made within, uh, within uh, the field of study and perhaps some of the uh, relevance of Dr. Klein, given some of the uh, things that we see going on today. Um, well, uh, Peter, it's interesting. Um, by way of answering your question, let me just start with an observation. Um, Klein died 20 years after Van Til died. Um, it was 20 years ago I started the Van, the Van Til biography. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm now working on Klein uh, at the same point after his death that I started working on Van Til. So the, the parallels in my experience are really interesting. Yeah. I think there's a case where, you know, when, when an influential figure passes, um, there's often a time when um, the church wants to move on and he, he falls into some relative neglect. And then there's a moment of kind of, reappropriation of him. And I think there's something happening that happened to an extent with Van Til. Um, and maybe I, I think um, I think there's some interest, um, a particular interest I'm, I'm, I'm sensing now of people really wanting to, to think about Van, uh, Klein again. So there, there are parallels in these two stories as I see it. Um, uh, Klein, um, as we've already mentioned, as Scott mentioned, uh, offers a way of seeing how you can be creative within confessional boundaries. And um, this is something that is, 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 is hard for a lot of reform to understand. We often think, and I think we've been uh, biased to think that confessions are um, impediments to creativity. Now, as, as Gray can tell us, the 
history of Reformed theology indicates otherwise. The most creative times in Reformed theology were those moments of intense confessional commitment. And um, Klein gives a contemporary expression to that. The confession is liberating. Within the bounds of this confession, you're free to explore. And Klein gives, um, gives evidence of that. I think he also uh, shows a, um, uh, and this gets underappreciated, how committed he is to, uh, to using scholarship to defend orthodoxy. Um, the burden of his framework interpretation comes in large part from his commitment to biblical inerrancy. How do you make sense of Genesis 2? <laughs> um, now, there's more than that involved, but there is uh, a genuine interest in um, the apologetic use of Old Testament scholarship we're seeing in him. There's, there's his, uh, his inheritance from, from, from uh, Van Til. Um, and um, he continues to be uh, a, a, um, a way between the extremes of looking at the issues of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments. Um, he is, um, he is uh, honestly reckoning, reckoning with the differences, the discontinuities, and finding a way for Reformed theology covenant theology to account for those. I've had, I've had many Baptists say that Klein gets us, understands what we're trying to, to say. I've heard many former Baptists say Klein was the one who persuaded me about, about uh, paedo-baptism. Um, so he continues to be a valuable resource uh, for those, those difficult questions of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments. That's absolutely true. We have had students here who have, uh, 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 Reformed Baptist students who have actually said the same thing. It was his views on the, on the sacraments um, that eventually persuaded them to embrace paedo-baptism. And, and so absolutely true. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much more to talk about Klein the churchman uh, Klein, the uh, the continuance of the traditions of Gerhardus Voss and and right. so much more. I wish we I wish we could do that, but uh, time won't allow it now. But uh, I guess this is all the reason why uh, we everyone really needs to get a copy of of your biography on uh, <laughs> on Dr. Klein. I definitely want my own autographed copy, John. By the way, when that all comes out, and, and it'll take a few years. Well. Don't. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> you know this, and and when that comes out, we definitely will hopefully uh, uh, renew another uh, uh, moment of resurgence of interest in Dr. Klein, as uh, yeah. as he has uh, as there. You know, he was sort of a bright shining light for a moment that influenced a significant amount of Old Testament students, and the impact that they are making now as they are carrying forward his teaching. Uh, you can see in different areas and different circles, and because it is a continuance of, of Reformed biblical theology, uh, it is for me very gratifying and satisfying to see, not just because of Dr. Klein, this is Reformed orthodoxy that he's promoting, the centrality of Christ, the centrality of the kingdom, and that's uh, what I've always uh, uh, valued uh, from his thinking, and, and, and thank people like you who are kind to keep his uh, lane and his legacy alive. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Sure. And thank you for your client quotes uh, every Tuesday. Well, it's it's a it's a labor of love, but um, hey, someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, folks. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks again to uh, our dear friend, John Meether. We look forward to having him again. Uh, again, look forward to his writings that are currently out there, as well as his upcoming biography on uh, Dr. Meredith Klein. Uh, until we can meet again, take care. Thank you. Thank you all.
the, the problems are, are several fold. First of all, deciphering his handwriting. Yeah. And then, of course, you don't know if he actually wrote what he drafted to his um, to his correspondent. And you also don't know if he actually sent the letter or just sent it <laughs> by writing a draft. <laughs> so um, those are those are some reasons why you have to treat his correspondence with some with some caution.